Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined, a show about science, philosophy, faith, and finding meaning in the modern-day world. This week, the legacy, history, and future of the Black Church. I talk with the dean of Howard University's Divinity School, Dr. Yolanda Pierce, about the origins of the Black Church in America. Some of these churches were really born out of the traditions of many enslaved Africans worshiping outdoors mm. in, in the hollows and the hills and the secret places. We call it the invisible institution. Then, how aligned are conservative Black churches with Black Lives Matter activists? We'd love to see more spiritual leaders embrace Black Black Lives Matter, we'd love to see the Black church especially kind of reclaim its roots, its radical Christian roots. I'll explore the role of spirituality, prayer, and rituals within the Black Lives Matter movement, all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Today on the show, we're exploring the spiritual roots of Black liberation and finding out whether those roots still play a role with activists in the Black Lives Matter movement. First, let's hear about the origins of black activism within the black church. Three to four hundred years ago, enslaved African peoples arrived on America's shores. They were robbed of almost everything but their own spiritual traditions. Those spiritual roots were the foundations of the black church, which became deeply intertwined with a legacy of social justice. The church also gave rise to the influential black preacher, an educator, guide, and spiritual lightning rod for fighting oppression. But what does the black church look like now, and what's its future? To learn more about where the church started and where it's going, we're joined by Dean of Howard University School of Divinity, Dr. Yolanda Pierce. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, I'd love to start by just hearing a little bit about your own religious upbringing. Uh, What kind of a church did you attend? And um, if you could tell us what, what some of those experiences were like. So I grew up in a denomination called the Church of God in Christ, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in America. Prior to joining that church, we belonged to a tiny little holiness storefront church. This is really an urban phenomenon, the storefront church, where you might have a strip of stores and shops. So a liquor store next to a church, next to a bank, next to a grocery store. And for me, the experience of growing up in the holiness Pentecostal tradition is about going to church a lot. We Mm -hmm. went sometimes four days a week. The services were long. Sometimes we would do all night tarry services. I decided at 16 when I was getting ready to go to college that I would never go back to church again. I had had (laughs) enough church in my life, but God has a sense of humor because now I am the dean of a divinity school and I spend almost all of my free time in churches or at various religious institutions. Wow. So something clearly circled back for you in that experience. I, I, I wonder kind of what that was. What, what was the draw back to kind of the maybe some of those earlier moments of your life? So for me, I know exactly what that draw was. I was very fortunate to be a 16-year-old freshman at Princeton University, and I had two classes. I had an introduction to African-American studies class with Cornell West, and I had an African-American religious history class with Dr. Albert Rabateau. Mm. And those two instructors gave me something that I did not even know I needed, which was that they were able to communicate to me that the study of African-American culture, but specifically African-American religion, was something that not only could be studied, but in fact should be studied, that there was a value there, that there was a beauty there. And so the tradition I saw as a kid that I thought I was sick of, I now had these two renowned professors saying, no, there's something here worthy of further study. And so that propelled me into my own career looking at African-American religious history. 
Well, l- let's explore some of that sweep. I mean, I, I really, from you, want to get uh, a sense of the evolution of the African-American experience in the church and, and the importance that the church played. So if we were to go back 300-plus years ago and kind of imagine this very dark time in American history where Africans are arriving to be enslaved in the U.S., I'm curious about what religious practices they're bringing with them at that time. What was going on? Can you tell us about that? It's really important for us to remember that 300, almost 400 years ago, as enslaved Africans were being brought to this country, that although they were stripped of almost everything, stripped um, in many cases of their names, certainly stripped of any property they would have tried to bring with them, Um, because many of them were mixed in various communities. They may have lost their um, original languages, but the sense of the sacred came with them. The sense of the sacred, a notion of God, a notion of something bigger and larger, that was able to survive the Middle Passage. And it's important for us to note that because the way we often do the history is that enslaved African peoples got to this nation and they encountered Christianity. Christianity itself was birthed in an African cradle. And African peoples had a long-standing tradition that was Christian, as well as other religious traditions. African traditional religions, as well as Islam. And so those people who arrived to the shores of what will later become the United States did not come empty handed. They came with notions of the sacred. Many of them had a notion of a creator God, something outside of themselves, bigger than themselves. Within theology, we call it a cosmology. Mm. They had a sense of a sacred cosmos that God was at work even in the circumstance of enslavement. And so what they encountered in North America primarily was certainly a westernized Christianity, but that westernized Christianity, they did not adopt wholesale. They actually adapted it and transformed it. And so what we're looking at in terms of African-Americans being involved, particularly in Christianity, are the ways in which they adapted it to meet their own needs and their own purposes. That's so interesting because I feel like I know such a a a small story in this or or the wrong story which is you know, uh, the Africans would have arrived and been forced into a, a church, uh, maybe unwillingly, and 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 that's kind of where I leave off. So, w- where is that first point of contact with the church, and what was that like? So, unfortunately, the first point of contact really with the church, the Christian church, was through the slave trade, yeah. which is that many churches, many religious organizations helped to finance slave voyages. And so, unfortunately, the very first point of contact within this Western construct of Christianity may have been the slave ship that arrived at the shore of Ghana mm. um, bearing the name, the ship actually bearing the name of something like Christ the King. Or the ship actually bearing the flag of the cross. So unfortunately, that first contact really is a violent contact. Yeah. Then we begin to see um, congregations of of black churches uh, crop up. What, What were those like at the time and what purpose did they really serve in the first 100, 200 years of slavery? So we have some African-American congregations being born and founded because they were not being allowed to worship at white churches. And so the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, which is the oldest African-American denomination in this country, really is founded as a protest movement. They were worshiping at a white church. Two African-American men went to the altar to pray at the front of the church, they were physically, violently removed from that church. And so they started the first African-American church and the first African-American denomination. So many of them were literally birthed out of a protest against racism, out of a protest of having to sit at the back of the church or having to sit in the balcony of the church. Some of these churches were really born out of the traditions of many enslaved Africans worshiping outdoors Mm. in in the hollas and the hills and the secret places. We call it the invisible institution. 
that even if they were allowed to worship at white churches and did so on a regular basis, they would have separate secret services. Some of those services, of course, were for the purpose of running away from enslavement, yeah. right? And so yeah. they had this secondary purpose. But many of them were for the purposes of worship and catharsis and having a space of your own and having a space where you were not under white surveillance as you may have been within white churches. Yeah, so I guess I'm hearing th- this really, th- this history of, of of catharsis, of creating um, their own space, their own domain to worship. But I wonder at the same time, I mean, is there also a parallel story of Christianity being part of the oppressor, of keeping the system in place at that time? Was that going on too? That's absolutely going on at the same exact time. So you look at the ways in which the Bible, the physical text, the holy sacred scripture of Christianity was used to justify enslavement. And you really see how Christianity, how other religious traditions were used to justify oppression, certain verses that were constantly being lifted up, like servants be obedient to your masters, or certain kind of theological ideas. So the eschatological hope, this idea that, well, one day you'll be with Jesus, Mm -hmm. so don't worry about your state of enslavement in your human physical body um, as a way, a means one would imagine imagine of trying to stamp out any kind of rebellion, any kind of revolution. So you absolutely have just within the scripture itself, such a contradictory message. Some enslaved people heard them or could read them and saw a liberatory message, but they were being used to provide systems of oppression for not only certainly African-Americans, but of course, as you can imagine, the indigenous peoples of America as well. So I guess I'm hearing almost, is, is it two different stories here of Christianity? One to hold down and one to lift up. And what I take maybe out of this is that the one that lifts up the independent church of African-Americans probably is the one that prevails. Do I, is that right? I think so. I think that there are two stories, but they still are deeply connected to one another. Mm. I do think that the story of a space that is sacred, that can be a liberatory space, is by by and large the one that African Americans adapt and adopt. So by the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, certainly in the 20th century, we're talking about the Black church as an institution, the Black church as a movement, the Black church as the fuel behind the civil rights movement. We're talking about the preacher as a political leader, the preacher as someone who is fighting for the rights of his or her people. And that liberatory sense of the gospel and that liberatory sense of Christianity certainly is the predominant message. But I think it's important for us to contend with the oppressive elements that you still saw in Christianity, because I think we're still as a nation grappling, right, with the ways in which the text can be used to liberate and the text can be used to oppress. The text can be used to say to a group of people, it matters that we don't keep children in cages at our borders. And other people are looking at that text and saying, well, they're foreigners and they're strangers. And the text doesn't provide a space for them here in our nation. I don't want us to lift, to lose the ways that the text can still be very deeply problematic, even when it can be liberatory for people. And I think you alluded to something I I, I want to come back to here, which is the rise of, of the black preacher in this, which has become so seminal in American history, and I think unique in this in this black American uh, history and sense of culture. Um, can you say a little bit more about that, and, and and kind of how some of these figures shaped the church as it began to move forward through history? There's nothing really in history like the African-American preacher. So the African-American preacher emerges as um, sort of a mythic figure, kind of like a John Henry. Um, The preacher is gifted rhetorically and so can preach and can teach, but the preacher is also someone who is politically savvy 
And so he, or now we can include she, but predominantly he um, would be the person who really was an intercessor between black culture, black tradition, and a larger white world and a mm. larger white culture. And so for the longest time, look at a figure like Martin Luther King. You have someone who is highly educated, who has a PhD, so he's an academic, but he is also a preacher, but he's a civil rights leader. and. He wasn't the only one. You can even look at someone like Jesse Jackson, who I think really is the last of that generation that embodied what it meant to fuse political leadership and activism with also this really serious sense of religiosity and um, religious fervor. And so that is certainly, of course, birthed out of enslavement. If you look at the history of enslavement in this nation, the first African-Americans to learn how to read or write were often the preachers. Mm -hmm. um, they sometimes were allowed access to the Bible or they stole learning, as we would say, and learned how to read the Bible. So that person generally was the most educated person on the plantation. And so the Sunday school that is birthed in black churches wasn't necessarily to teach the stories of the Bible. It was literally school on Sunday to teach for, uh, enslaved and formerly enslaved men and women to read and write. So the wedding of the political and social activism and justice-oriented sense with religiosity and caring for the community and a theological figure becomes wed within the tradition of the Black preacher. So in other words, I mean, there's something just deeply political, I think, in this history that we're talking Absolutely. about here. And, and, and I remember I, I saw that you wrote once, quote, the work of justice is deeply theological. Our church communities must foster a faith that gives people room to grow, to stretch, to ask tough questions. So uh, that sense of, of, of fighting for justice, of, of making inroads politically, seems to be a through line in all of this. Absolutely. So the fighting for justice, it is the leading the marches and the rallies, um, uh, the protests. It is the March on Washington. Um, you look at someone like John Lewis, uh, who has talked an, uh, quite a bit and written quite a bit about his faith, that many of the men and women, and also at this point, I really need to point out boys and girls because they were mm. very young. They were doing it really connected not only to their faith, but sometimes as an outgrowth of a ministry at a church, the buses that sent people um, to Selma or, or to Montgomery were often because churches sponsored them. Um, the people on the platform and the March on Washington were ministers. And so this idea that there can be a space for justice that is wedded to a religious sensibility and that two, two things, those two things are tied and actually you can't have one without the other. I think is very, very powerful. I also recognize that we're in a moment of critique of that hmm. when you look at something like the Black Lives Matter movement. Say more about that, what do you mean? The Black Lives Matter movement, I think has been quite vocal and rightfully so that this particular generation and this particular time and moment is not going to be dependent upon whether or not the black church is involved. So you think about 50 years ago, it would be unthinkable for a major political movement within the African-American context to not be founded in a church. But the Black Lives Matter movement starts organically. It's not tied and connected to a church. It doesn't have key religious uh, leaders. And there's been a critique of the church that um, ministers are and, and preachers and church folks are too relaxed, too lenient, not aggressive enough, not marching, not rallying, not protesting, too comfortable. And I think that that actually is an important critique that is coming from a new generation of activists who care deeply about social justice but don't necessarily tie it to a religious faith. This seems like a really big point to me because you also said a few minutes ago how Jesse Jackson, for example, was part of what, of what you said was kind of a last generation of this kind of activist preacher, but also deeply steeped uh, in, in religious history. Um, so do you feel that 
perhaps uh, current leaders of the black churches are simply not as political or out front on issues as they might have been before? Some of them are very political, and but what the protest looks like these days is very, very different. And so there, and, and all forms of protest certainly are valid, but there is um, the marches, the rallies that we're seeing happening, the uprisings that we're seeing going on, literally living here in Washington, D.C., there has been a protest every single day for over 50 days. Now, yeah. whether the media covers it or not, I live here. I see them out there in Freedom Plaza. I see them out there, Black Lives Matters Plaza, protesting. Um, that's a very, very different way of doing justice work. And what gets critiqued about the church is that the church might have a um, get out the vote drive. It might have the souls to the poll drive. And Black Lives Matter protesters are saying, voting is insufficient. It is one thing, but it can't be the only thing. They are pressing the church to do more. They are pressing the church to be more active, to be more vocal. And I think that this is a great moment of critique. I, I do think that there are some preachers and certainly there are some pastors who are taking up that, that banner and that call uh, for social justice, but there are some whose theology is quite traditional. And so if you have a movement that's saying we are gay and trans and LGBT and cisgender, we are young, we're old, we're able-bodied, we're, we're, uh, we are folks with disabilities. If you're saying that we're this movement and it extends past the orthodoxy of the traditional Christian church, the Christian church often does not know how to respond to that. I want to stop you like every 30 seconds because what you say I think is so interesting <laughs> and there's so many through lines here. I mean, even to take your last point, um, yes, we are seeing this millennial generation that is pro-LGBTQ plus rights, um, that can be transgender, that is, and, and, and that also makes me kind of want to explore that question further of how does that gel with the orthodoxy with some of the more conservative black churches? Can you say a little bit more about that? Some churches have simply ignored the question of LGBT rights, simply pretended that it does not exist, simply pretended that gay marriage wasn't legalized in this nation um, several years ago. I think some think that if they simply ignore it, that these things will go away, but, but they won't. And some churches have maintained a fairly hard line that they have a theological um, position say, for instance, against uh, gay marriage. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very heartened to see the black churches that are growing and shifting and changing. And I would simply say they have to grow. They have to shift. They have to change if they want to stay relevant. If you want to stay relevant, you have to listen to what people are talking about in their current political context. And if they're talking about the rights of those who are disabled, or if they're talking about the ways in which we treat trans men and trans women whose deaths are often ignored, particularly their deaths by uh, police officers, then the church has to respond to that if the church does not want to stay relevant. I think black churches have to ask themselves the question, do we want to survive for the next 100, 200 mm -hmm. years as we've survived for the past 300 years? And if the answer is yes, then the, they have to have space and room for everyone with their multiple identities, including their sexual orientation, their gender expression. They have to have space for that. How has it also been for you personally? Um, watching some of these protests, um, watching the peaceful protests, watching those that have been, uh, we have seen some, you know, uh, some looting or vandalism. I, you know, I think these are questions that come up a lot right now. But as you sit back personally in the context of this conversation, how, how have you felt about it? I'm watching a lot of righteous anger. I'm watching mm. a lot of righteous indignation, people who said enough. Um, so I've, I've spent my career, higher education on lots of different college campuses. And so watching some of these statues come down, yeah. watching my own alma mater rename its school of public policy, stripping away Woodrow Wilson's name, something we were advocating for, you know, 25 years ago, uh, for those of us who were African-American students there at the time. So for me personally, I'm, I'm watching what it means when people are angry, 
but also not anger that is mindless, but anger that wants to find a place of direction. Mm -hmm. And so whether that's removing the flag, uh, the Confederate flag, whether that is renaming buildings, whether that is toppling statues, whether that is calling attention to the disproportionate funding that police receive compared to say our public school systems, I am personally watching people who are saying, we're not going to go into the next decade the way that we have been in this previous decade, that something different has to happen in 2020 and in 2021. I think it's very much still tied to the pandemic. And I've tried to describe this um, other places. You're, you're really in a situation where I think people are thinking about life or death. Mm -hmm. um, for those of us living in major cities where we've had, you know, very, very high numbers of people who've been infected and certainly people who are, who are dying. And so people are thinking about life and death in particular kinds of ways. And so they're channeling their anger and, and their prophetic rage into making a difference. And I realized finally that I don't necessarily have to agree with everything to understand the position from which they come, mm -hmm. to understand why they don't feel as if um, many of the things that we've been taught to do, well, if we're patient, if we pass legislation, if we you know, wait another year or two or 10, something will change. Um, the evidence says it won't. So people yeah. are taking certain matters into their own hands. To bring this kind of back to the conversation we've been having, can this movement exist purely on a secular level, or does there need to be a religious or spiritual component to go along with it for the long term? What do you think? I think there has to be a spiritual component, but it doesn't. There doesn't have to be a religious component. Right. And I'm being explicit about that. I don't think that it has to be associated with a particular church or faith tradition or denomination or, or Christian or Muslim. But it's. I think it's a deeply spiritual movement. I think that people are thinking about what matters in life. Um, I think people are thinking deeply about questions of justice. And for me, justice is theological. It is, it is tied to the spiritual. So I, I think that in order to sustain this movement, it has to be spiritual, but it does not have to be religious. And I think it's important for our churches and our mosques and our temples to really take stock of what it means when people are having spiritual awakenings, but they're not necessarily having those spiritual awakenings tied to a particular religious tradition. Well, well, Dr. Pierce, we really appreciated the conversation today on KCRW. Thanks again for the time. Thank you, and I wish your listeners very best. Again, that was Dr. Yolanda Pierce from Howard University's Divinity School. Still to come, how is spirituality and faith represented in Black Lives Matter? We'll hear from two people deeply involved in the movement. That's ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We're continuing to explore the importance of black theology, faith, and institutions in fighting injustice. We just heard Dr. Yolanda Pierce say that Black Lives Matter began as a secular movement, but is a spiritual component needed in order to sustain its growth? Our next guests describe their own personal experiences within the Black Lives Matter movement. How did the rituals of prayer, song, and sanctuary emerge? Is spirituality an important component in their fight for justice? Melina Abdullah is a professor of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, and one of the original members of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And Heba Farag is Assistant Director of Research at the University of Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Heba, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jonathan. I'm so deeply privileged to be here today. Well, Melina Abdullah, I want to begin with you here. Um, do you think that at its origin, Black Lives Matter is a secular movement? Um, I don't know if I would call it a secular movement. I think that 
we may not have recognized explicitly the spiritual power and groundedness of Black Lives Matter, and that may have happened um, in earnest. The recognition of it may have happened in earnest about six months to a year in. Um, but I think that it was always there. It was always foundational to who we were. So six to 12 months. Do you remember that kind of just something felt different, that it was maybe moving in a more spiritual direction? Absolutely. So there was always some component of spirituality. So I think about the first night that we gathered and the summoning in of ancestors to space and the very almost palpable spiritual energy that um, circulated through the group as we stood in a circle in St. Elmo Village, which is probably one of the most spiritual spaces in the city. It's a black artist and organizing community in mid-city. And, um, you know, stood under the moon and um, pledged to build a movement, not a moment. Um, I think in those moments, um, there was a spiritual energy there. And we acknowledged it, but didn't really acknowledge it as what brought us together. I think that we were also moving um, in the streets and moving, you know, really as a pushback to the theft of life, the theft of black life. And a few months in, as we began to be more deliberate and thoughtful about what we were doing with our organizing, as we go pour libation at the ocean, um, we began to recognize the importance of spiritual energy and the fact that it had always been there, but we didn't um, always uh, recognize it collectively. Mm-hmm. How about Farag? When did you see this, this movement kind of emerge as a spiritual movement? So I'm going to jump back and start with this question of BLM as secularizing the civil rights movement, Mm. because I've seen this argument posed several times. And the question is often posed as, is BLM a spiritual movement? And I really believe when we pose the question that way, we're ignoring what's at the center of many progressive social movements like Black Lives Matter, which is the inherent nature of human dignity and the duty to fight against injustice and oppression that threatens that inherent dignity. Those are spiritual values that lie at the the heart of almost all faith traditions and are often formed based on religious spiritual belief systems. It's the interplay of our spiritual beliefs and our politics where that's formed. And it reminds me of a quote from famed civil rights activist Grace Lee Boggs, she said something like, to make a revolution, people must not only struggle against existing institutions, they must make a spiritual leap and become more human human beings. In order to transform the world, they must transform themselves. I also believe that questions that kind of point to the lack of faith in BLM movements tend to ignore the violent history of white supremacy embedded within um, institutions of traditional faith that, for example, stripped black people of divine salvation, mm-hmm. the violence at hands of traditional institutions of faith through forced conversions, native boarding schools, the vilification of native and indigenous and African belief systems, painting them as um, demonic, devil-worshipping, criminalizing native belief to the point that entire syncretic belief systems were created to hide that belief, like Santeria and voodoo. And to this day, practitioners often refuse to speak openly about those belief systems because of the persecution they've, they've faced. Mm-hmm. And in that frame, Black Lives Matter chapters and the affiliated groups um, with the movement, the reclamation and expression of Native and African spiritual beliefs and practices, it's not just a spiritual act, it's a radical spiritual act. Melina, can you can you talk a little bit about how you begin a protest? Because, um, you know, Heba did mention a bit of this here, but there is a lot of evoking names of ancestors of praying. For those that, that haven't had a chance to participate in this, how, how do you characterize um, those, those moments? Sure. So we generally ask that people not film the openings of our um, events, of our, our demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And Part of that is, of course, the um, demonization of the way in which we um, acknowledge spiritual energy. So I have seen some of those articles, some of those critiques of pouring libation, which is a centuries-old tradition among African people, acknowledging that when bodies are stolen, 
um, spirits still remain. So there was that consciousness, but more than that consciousness, as we pour libation and engage in spiritual work, we actually um, don't want that disrupted in any way by filming, Mm -hmm. right? So um, oftentimes we won't film because we believe that the filming actually disrupts some of the spiritual energy. All Black Lives Matter uh, meetings and protests begin with the pouring of libation. And can you explain kind of what that is, the pouring of libation, specifically for those that don't know? So what it looks like is the pouring of water into earth, Hmm. the pouring of water into plants, the pouring of water into flowers, into something that represents the sanctity of life and earth. So we begin with that. The way that we choose to pour libation most often recognizes first those whose bodies have been stolen through state-sanctioned violence. So we call names like Kenneth Ross Jr. and Waukesha Wilson and Keisha Michael and Michelle Shirley and Keith Bercy and so many others in Los Angeles County. We know that there are 610 names that we could call over the last seven years who we fight on behalf of. So we begin by calling those names. And then we begin calling the names of those who we call our warrior ancestors. So we believe that Black Lives Matter is but one point on a long struggle for Black freedom. And so when we think about the work that people like Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells and Ella Baker and Martin Luther King and Haj Malik El-Shabazz, Malcolm X did, we summon them into the work as well. And we offer prayer that we are good heirs, that we honor them with our work, that we honor our ancestors with our work. And then the third um, group that we call is usually we ask people to call on a bloodline or spirit line ancestor in their own lives. So your grandmother or great-grandmother or grandfather or uncle, um, and you call those names. We call those names. As we call the names, um, we usually have whoever's pouring the libation say the name and have the entire crowd repeat the name, and then we say the word ashe, which is a Yoruba word that means amen, amin. It's an affirmation. Um, of what we've just said. And so that's how we open all of our Black Lives Matter demonstrations Mm. and um, gatherings. What does that feel like to sit and hold that kind of a space? How would you how would you put words to it? Well, I'll say that until I just said some of those names, this interview felt off to me Mm. that it is a grounding. It reminds us why we're there, that we're not there for the speeches or the show of it, or even just to, um, you know, yell at Jackie Lacey or the police chief, right? We're there really um, for a reckoning. We're there because um, spirit commands that we be there. Um, Black Lives Matter is, you know, run through the love of the people. So we are not paid organizers. We all have different jobs, but we call this, and this is, you know, again, the conscious reclamation of Black Lives Matter as a spiritual movement. We call this our sacred duty. This is our sacred duty. It's what we're summoned in to do. So once we call the libation, start calling the names and pour the libation, it um, kind kind of brings everything into alignment and you can feel the shift in energy um, among the folks who are gathered. Does it feel like, I don't know, like being being in a church or, or something of that nature to you, or, or is it very different? It feels like being in a church in the truest sense. You know, when we talk about a church being the coming together of two or more, right? It feels like the coming together of the crowd on one accord. So we begin to connect spiritually through that. And so the energy shifts. And so I guess it would be likened, it could be likened to being in a place of worship, Mm -hmm. but it's not only like that, it's bigger than that. It's um, the same feeling when I remember going to the ocean in Brazil with my family and um, sitting there and calling names and acknowledging Yemeya, 
right? And it feels like that. It doesn't have to be the going to a, to a mosque or going to a temple. It's bigger than that. Yeah. Heba, I want you to jump in here. You, you mentioned um, how these places have become impromptu sanctuaries, holy spaces, altars. Can you say more just kind of about some of the, some of the images that come out of this and, and the feelings associated with it? I feel so privileged to have heard um, Melina talk about the experience of these ceremonies. Um, I think it was so powerful that she said this is the best kind of church, mm-hmm. the best kind of worship. You know, there's a tenet and hallmark of the spirit in the movement, a notion that's called radical inclusion, right? The idea that the movement accepts you as you are, the idea that you must center the most marginalized voice, the idea that you, to be free, the most marginalized and oppressed of us must be free is a powerful notion. You know, it's filled with radical love for those on the margins you know, from incarcerated and former incarcerated folks to sex workers to trans community to the undocumented. It's also filled with a courage to face oppressive dynamics within communities, you know, and it's part of this ethic that BLM is saying it's not enough to end police violence, but we have to also end the way that we harm and judge and criminalize and police one another And the hallmark of BLM ritual spaces is that beautiful, radical acceptance and love. Um, And I think the difficult conversation that this presents, and maybe a unique opportunity for institutions of traditional faith that are grappling with what's at the heart of their missions, as they face crises of trust and relevance, who have they cast out from amongst, you know, their pews? Where have they caused harm and perpetuated abuse? You know, where can they seek to find ways to mend and repair? And in that work of opening up worship spaces, repairing spiritual abuse and harm, you know, that's all work towards the goals of the movement. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you've written that, you know, the BLM network has embraced female and queer leadership along with membership that, that has been shunned or marginalized by traditional faith groups. So, I mean, are you kind of calling out to them and saying, hey, uh, we're making room for this here. We're asking you to make room for, for any type of person that wants to worship where you are. Absolutely. I mean, what excites me so much about this conversation focused on the spirit in the movement for Black Lives is that it opens the door for dialogue, not only about why spirituality is important to those inside the movement, but the opportunities um, that this formation of spiritual community presents for faith institutions and leaders outside of the movement. Um, the BLM approach, if I can say that, necessitates right that communities work to dismantle systems of oppression, not only in the state, but between communities, within communities, in families, in gender relations, in religious spaces, and ultimately within oneself. I mean, this is heart work, right? And this embrace of female and queer leadership and membership that have been shunned by traditional groups, um, it's disrupting a legacy of leadership that's heteronormative, that's almost exclusively male. Melina Abdullah, would you like to see some of the black churches be more involved or more out front on this movement? We'd love to see that. Um, And we also want to honor those churches who do see this as part of their spiritual um, requirement, their sacred duty. So from the very beginning, we did have churches involved. I, I think that when we think about 2014 and as Black Lives Matter Um, You know, it was a watershed moment, right? When Mike Brown was murdered, his spirit kind of ascended and grew us into a global movement. We were founded in 2013, but it was 2014 when we really become a global movement. And the first place that we gathered in Ferguson was at St. John's Church. And um, we can think about the spiritual work of people like Starsky Wilson, who I say, um, (laughs) I'm a Muslim. However, I've also joined St. John's Church Mm -hmm. and um, Starsky Wilson as my pastor um, because he welcomed us into that space. He um, allowed us to practice traditional African religion even within the church. Um, He prayed with us. He fed us spiritually and physically. And so there were churches 
like Pastor Starsky's church here in Los Angeles um, in 2016, spiritually we had to confront what it meant that Donald Trump was occupying the White House. It compelled us, we were compelled to fully embrace the power, our spiritual power as Black Lives Matter. And we gathered and pulled forward um, a national um, commitment to spiritual work that we called Sacred Resistance that included um, both members of Black Lives Matter as well as those who were spiritually aligned from many, many different faiths. So um, Najiba Saeed was part of it. Um, Rabbi Heather Miller was part of it. And um, we continue to do that work. So, yes, we'd love to see more spiritual leaders um, embrace Black Lives Matter. We'd love to see the black church especially um, kind of reclaim its roots, its um, radical Christian roots. Um, And we also want to acknowledge that that is moving and that has been a part um, of who we've been since the beginning. But um, it can always grow. And it is growing. Right. And and I'm just wondering, when we think about some of these conservative black churches, what were some of their concerns with the Black Lives Movement? I mean, wh- what did you hear from them? I mean, there was the whole piece that, you know, I agree with the message, but not the tactics. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so they didn't like that we were disruptive. And, you know, to be honest, we cuss a lot. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was the conversation about you know, cussing as being problematic. Um, We're very intentional about rejecting respectability politics, especially when you're talking about the theft of black life. We're not going to say that we need to be calm and speak in particular ways and only um, offer meek prayers. You know, a prayer can be a curse, right? There's, you know, curse words can be um, strong prayers and And I think that when you talk about especially mothers of those who've been stolen through police violence, we need them to speak as forcefully as I believe God commands them to. And so that is what a lot of um, faith communities, especially um, some kind of more traditional Christian churches have said um, that they don't like our tactics. And then um, as was brought up, you know, there have been conversations across many faith communities about our um, unwavering affirmation that all black lives matter. And, you know, when we talk about we're not going to be quiet about queer black lives or trans black lives or incarcerated black lives, all black lives matter and should be centered in this work. And that has been an ongoing conversation, courageous conversation that we've had to have with several faith leaders. But I do see that shifting a bit. Just um, this month, we have our um, monthly meetings every second Sunday of the month. And we were invited in to a missionary Baptist church that hosted us, Hmm. which was incredible because, you know, if you think about the most conservative of the black Christian traditions, it's missionary Baptist churches. And I just happened to have a meeting with this young pastor of uh, Tree of Life Missionary Baptist Church in Watts um, the week before the meeting. And his name is Marcus Murchison. And we were talking about Black Lives Matter. And I was just trying to get him kind of to understand what it was we were doing. And even with that very conservative Christian congregation that um, he ministered to, one of the first things that he said, or the thing that he said to conclude our first meeting was, well, let us host you for your next meeting. Hmm. And, you know, it was one of the most powerful spaces that we've been in to date was being in this missionary Baptist church in Watts with a very traditional congregation, all of whom said that they're coming back next month. Heba Farag, what, what does that story mean to you? Do you does this feel like there's going to be maybe a changing in, in more mainstream religious traditions or or will others still continue to hold 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 ground here? I think um, as Dr. Abdullah has 
um, emphasized, there it really is a false dichotomy to divide faith communities and the BLM movement, because there have been so many faith leaders from a wide range of faith traditions that have fully supported BLM and created supportive, inclusive spaces for worship and organizing. That being said, there is many opportunities for repair, for harm that's been done within and between communities. There's so many activists that I've spoken to that feel a deep sense of hurt from traditional religious communities because of the feeling that they have been cast out because of their sexual identity, because of their gender identity, their sexual orientation, because of the way that they practice their politics. Um, and so there are all these opportunities for repair for what um, some people call church hurt. Um, and I love to hear these stories of that repair coming to pass as people find ways to work together in the movement for Black Lives. And I'd also like to lift up, if I can, that, you know, we've been talking a lot about Christian tradition, but it's really important to understand that, you know, we have, um, you know, the largest proportion of the Muslim community in this country is black. And so there's also been um, kind of a complicated relationship between Black Lives Matter and Islamic communities as well. And so, you know, we've had kind of parallel experiences there that are also moving. We've had experiences, for instance, where you have communities like Isla that have always been supportive of Black Lives Matter, that invite us in, that ask us to speak in the faith community, in the Muslim community. We've always had Muslim members of Black Lives Matter, Muslim leaders who are part of Black Lives Matter, um, my daughter and myself included. Um, and then we've also had questions around our tactics. And I think that this is maybe the connecting fiber. Our faith tradition actually commands us to be warriors for justice, right? To, to do justice work. That's what our, all of our faith traditions command. What's embedded in Islam and Christianity and Judaism and traditional African religion is also a necessary commitment to justice in the here and now. And so I think that maybe that's what we're trying to reconcile in this moment. How do we get faith communities to re-embrace um, what is true to us rather than what's interpreted for us and then fed back to us. Well, Melina Abdullah, professor at Cal State University, Los Angeles, thank you so much for the time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And Heba Farag is assistant director of research at the University of Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. The show is produced by Andrea Brody with digital support from Jennifer Wolf. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.